Welcome to Trail Angels today, powered by Karen the Load. It's Mark and Annette with you, and uh, we're excited to have Lois Letchford with us today as well. Here we are in the West, and uh, Lois is uh, up in upstate New York, in Troy, New York. And we are absolutely delighted to have you with us, as we've been talking for a few minutes before our recording, talking about uh, experiences that we've had, that you've had, that have been similar to what we're going to be talking about today. So welcome, Lois. Thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. It's wonderful to meet you all and the audience. We're so happy to have you here. And I, you're thinking we have accents. I'm thinking you have one and I love it. (laughs) We all have accents, despite what people think. Everyone has an accent. even, Even if you were a New York native, you would talk differently than we talk. And yes. we talk differently than than other people talk, but you know the the wonderful thing about life is the fact that uh, we we all belong to uh, to one human family, and and that's important. Yeah, and we can connect. We connect over stories. <laughs> exactly, we connect over these stories that are so unique to each one of us. Yet we overlap. Yes, in so many ways, and can learn from one another's stories. So, so listeners, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Lois and uh, why we felt that uh, she would be an excellent guest with Trail Angels today. Her story is one of overcoming the odds. It provides inspiration, motivation, and hope for others who have faced desperate situations. And we're going to be talking about desperate situations today. She recognized her learning difference at the age of 39 when teaching her second son to read. Through determination and grit, she lived to see the fruits of her labor. She shares with listeners the power of following instincts, mindset, and the value of living in the moment. She's a co-founder of teaching students with dyslexia, writing, and, and reading problems. Her first memoir was her book uh, that uh, she shared that uh, details the journey of her son and his, and, and I'm using your words here, his dramatic failure of the first grade. And, you know, we don't think of failure in the first grade. We think of failure in, in high school age. We think of maybe later in life. But the first grade, that's an incredible an, an incredible thought. And the story tells of the twists and turns that promoted her passion to her son's dramatic academic turnaround. And I've read the story about your son, and I am so excited to be talking about from where he was at in the first grade, and maybe even before that. To where he's at today. And so once again, welcome, Lois. This I, I can't even begin to tell you how timely this conversation is today. Yes. And we've been coming off a year and a half of different kinds of learning that maybe we're not used to, maybe we didn't feel quite comfortable with it, but we don't all learn the same. That's that's so true. So I I would love to start our conversation with talking about your story, about the story of your son and 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 what put you in a position. You were already in education, but what made you change? Yes, I was in education. I was a physical education teacher, but I married a, a professor or he eventually became a professor. So he had his Ph.D. and then we had these children and I would have thought they wouldn't have had any struggles. And my first one speaks at the speed of light, does everything at the speed of light, 
And my second little guy is the absolute opposite. And what I didn't know way back then was that Nicholas had ear infections from the age of 8 to 18 months. I didn't know how that impacted the brain and learning and language. How, how did you how did you determine that that was an issue? Uh, only when he failed and then after he succeeded, you start to look at what else went wrong, why did it go wrong, what was the impact of it, and that's when you realise, hey, when children are deaf, ear infections make you deaf, they don't get the language, they don't hear it, they don't hear it clearly, and it's distorted sound. And, in fact, this is what I've learnt very recently. As the brain grows, it uses and stabilises neurons and those they don't use, they lose. So if you're not hearing the language, you actually don't get those neurons growing. Mm. So what he was doing, he was doing a lot of puzzles. So that part of his brain is huge. But the part with language and really impacts learning early on and hearing the sounds and being able to distinguish sounds is impacted. That makes so much sense to me. As a child, I had constant ear infections and sinus infections, and I struggled when it came to those spelling tests and reading, and I I had to learn differently. But it was something that I always thought I I wasn't as smart as my friends. And I for sure wasn't as smart as, as my sisters and others, but it, it really came down to that I couldn't hear. Yeah. I felt the same way growing up. My younger sister did everything before me, so I knew she was smarter than me. We have a, a gauge. <laughs> we do, and, and it uh, affects us yes. in so many ways. At, at so, almost 60 years old, I'm feeling that now. Yeah. Let's get into to where things were at and what were some of the signs that you actually saw in your son? Now, obviously you, you saw the fact that he was struggling scholastically. Yes. Maybe was, was there difficulty in, in uh, listening to parents and doing things the way that you would have expected him to do? Yes. He was certainly slower with that and you had to have eye contact. And what did I say? Otherwise, you wouldn't have known. And Nicholas would wander off into his own world. He was very happy in his own world. So in that way, he looks like an autistic child, and he maybe is on the spectrum, but it was worse than that. And to give him an instruction and expect him to do something, you could see the cogs in his brain working, you know, before he gave you an answer. And when you've got that sort of slowness about... You're not going to survive in a classroom. And that's really what happened. You could see that he was slower with language. So what were the teachers saying at this time? Oh, he stares into space. He's, I can't do a thing with him. He's absolutely useless. Nicholas wet his pants every day. He bit his fingernails. He stared into space and the teacher shouted at him. So he's dealing with not only the the learning difficulties, but he's emotionally traumatized because of what's happening here. And socially, he sat by himself in the lunch hour every single day throughout first grade and second grade. That is so painful. 
my heart breaks for Nicholas. And we all know other children who sit alone, yeah. who, who are alone. And oftentimes I've, I've thought about individuals like Nicholas who are surrounded by many, but yet they're alone. Yes. Yeah. And it's just painful. It's taken me a long time to realise how bad first grade was. And one of the reasons I didn't take him out of school was that I knew he needed a one-to-one situation to teach him. Right. right. And I had a two-year-old at the time. And I had to have a totally different mindset to have done something. I needed more support, any number of things, but I should have, in hindsight, I should have removed him from school. Lois, you are identifying probably millions of children today uh, in Nicholas and uh, where he was at. And, and the reason why I'm spending so much time talking about signs and what you saw and, and what you were able to finally recognize that you needed to do is because we want to offer our listeners hope. Yeah. We want to give them some ideas that will help them to recognize what they need to do based on what maybe your experiences are. And so here you are, you see Nicholas struggling in the first grade, and, and you certainly don't have the, uh, the the support of the teacher. No. There's not a roadmap to follow. No. There wasn't a textbook, a manual of what to do. But I also want to also acknowledge to all the other mothers and fathers out there, we do the best we can with the knowledge and information we have. And so at the time, you were doing the best you could, and you couldn't see how you could give him the education. So you thought it was the best scenario, leaving him in school. Yeah. It's only recently that we've been able to talk about what happened in first grade with Nicholas, because Nicholas is now over 30. So it's the long-term case study. And I said to him recently, I wished I'd taken you out of school in first grade. And he said to me, I wish you had done too. And mm-hmm. that's the first time he's acknowledged really the enormous trauma that happened in that year. But he but, didn't know that and you didn't know that. And what what really surprises me is that the school allowed it to go on. And this is the hard part. Why did they allow it to go on? Because that child is dumb. Yeah. That's That's the part that really still breaks my heart. They've made a decision about his worth, about what he's capable of, his language and his ability to learn. Your child is dumb. So, you know, we'll do what we can for him, so keep him in school. Is it fair to say, Lois, that teachers make all the difference in the world when it comes to our children and their education? I am incredibly thankful that the only bad teacher he had was in first grade. The teacher he had in second grade and third grade were out of this world, particularly the second grade teacher that he went to the next year because she said, I'll look after him. And she did. She did. What a gift for you as a mother to know that she really would look after him. Yeah. Yeah. And to give you that peace of mind as you continue to process how you are going to help him in the years to come. Well, you know, like you said, there's no roadmap. 
what do you do? And you've got this younger child. He's one of three. So how do you give the other two attention while Nicholas is taking so much to learn things? You know, when he went into second grade, the first week the teacher gives them a list of spelling words. Okay, sat, hat, rat, bat, all the rhyming words, fantastic, and he could do it. And Nicholas comes to me and he says, Mummy, will you help me with my spelling words? Yes, Nicholas, of course I'll help you with your spelling words. Let's get some paper because we always start with pen and paper, don't we? Nicholas, this is the word. The word is cat. Can you write the word cat? Now, here's my son. He's sitting at the table. He's got his pencil in his hand, his arm around him, and the pencil stops above the paper. And you see the tension in his shoulders and you see the shoulders up near his ears and it just stopped. That's when I recognised he couldn't even write, didn't even know where to start writing a letter, Mm. let alone a letter that went with it. And I said to him, Nicholas, let's put that away, put it away. Let's go outside and we'll, we'll, we'll work out, do our spelling words in clay. He relaxed, I relaxed. We went outside and we'd, he worked for 90 minutes on working on those 10 spelling words. It's fantastic for Nicholas. You've got two other sons. There's a cost involved. But I had to do it. Nicholas worked with me. At the end of the week, we did three days working with clay, one day of working with letterblocks. The Friday morning, he says, hear me my spelling word, and he could do it. He goes to school and he only got two or three wrong, right. But that didn't matter because the next week he got them all right. And the week after we got them all right. And that was our first bonus. But the time involved, and if you have you have to have the time for children who take that time. There's no rushing it. So so let, let's talk about that for a second. You know, we've got to give some credit to Nicholas here. Oh. Because at the age of six, seven, eight years old, it would be very easy just to listen to those labels and just self-pronounce yourself dumb, stupid, you know, all the things that uh, that are, are are said by by kids that uh, don't know what they're saying, or even by teachers, or maybe even by some parents that, that are there. And, and, and I would hope that we have learned that our evolution of parenting has changed to a degree over the last number of years. But what was it that you think that Nicholas was able to grasp in his mind that he decided that he was going to be smart, that he was going to be someone that understood what he needed to do in order to be successful. That took a little bit longer. Right then in that first time in grade two, he was still working out, you know, I just want to be like everyone else. I just want to be able to do it. The success came much later and working out, yeah, I have got a brain. But he, for a long time, and I, that year, I gave Nicholas too many instructions to get dressed. And then he comes to me and he's not dressed in the way I said it. And he said to me, you know, Mummy, I'm not very smart. Oh, that breaks your heart. I, I still remember that day. Mummy, I'm not very smart. And he'd learnt that. But at least he could tell you that. Yes. And he knew that his mommy would help him however that looked. Yeah. 
and to love him and to reassure him that there are other things that he is good at. Yeah. That make him, you know, who he is. It's interesting because Nicholas has a language problem. When you speak to someone and they speak slow, you ask a question, you expect an answer back, boom. And when it doesn't come, you, the immediate thought is, what's wrong with that person? And that's Nicholas, still to this day. And because they have a language problem, you ignore, often ignore, all of their other strengths, and their strengths are harder to see. Who cares that you can do a puzzle within two seconds? You can look at it and have it done. That's not relevant at this time. What's relevant is that I can talk to you and I can give you my thoughts and I can tend, speak 100 miles an hour because that makes me smart. Yeah. And, and and the reason why that is so important is because all they hear is the negative. And all they see is I'm not as smart as my brother or my sister. And and that really, you know, I, I, I look at where we're at. Uh, our listeners know of, of our stories with the, with our son that uh, suffered from the effects of a brain tumor. And after he had his first uh, brain surgery, he didn't have the same capacity as he had before. And he'd get yeah. so down on himself. And I think that's when we really began to realize that we needed to change our parenting skills. The things changed then, especially with his ability when it came to reading yeah. and, and math. Because reading, he could read, but he couldn't remember what he read. He couldn't comprehend, he couldn't comprehend that. And... And then math problems, well, that just went out the window because it was more than two steps. Yes. Yes. And and I quickly learned that I couldn't ask him to do mm-hmm. something that took multi, you know, all these steps to do. Mm-hmm. I could say, you know, I couldn't say just go clean the kitchen. Yeah. I would, you know, I had to learn to say, I need you to unload. And load the dishwasher, you know, the dishwasher. I had to break it down to just just a couple steps to help him. But the frustration Mm -hmm. of this child that often told us he was he was dumb because of this learning disability that he now had that he didn't have. He went from being bright Mm-hmm. And and did well in school and grades too. It was a struggle, yeah. which brought us to having to learn to do things differently. Yeah. You know, whether it was an IEP, mm-hmm. which is a whole nother world. <laughs> I didn't know what an IEP was, and they, you know, they start talking about these different things and the doctors, and I'm like, what is an IEP? And you know, I needed to to catch up on what was even being offered. And then when it was offered, how do you actually implement the IEP? Because it's there, but whether the teachers actually followed it was a different story too. So, So listeners, an IEP is an individualized education plan. It's, it's something that uh, they, that when an IEP is administered, it's done so in a way that, they're not expected to learn at the same level as the class as an aggregate. And there is special learning. There is, and, and I hate to use that word special because that would be the last thing that he would want to think is that he was special. But at the same time, it gave him a chance to have 
a little bit more clarity based on the fact that the teacher would be able to give him more information than maybe she gave the rest of the class. And a chance to succeed. Yeah. That's huge. That's huge. So, so Lois, as an educator, tell us your experience when it comes to those individualized plans uh, and, and, and how important they are and how we can identify as parents when we may, we may need to go to the school and ask them for something like that. Well, thankfully, see, Nicholas went to school in Australia in 1994 to 1999. Thankfully, we didn't have such things as IEPs. And I say that because although he had, he was given a reading teacher, 30 minutes a day, one-on-one for four days a week, which was huge, IEPs can become, you know, a box-ticking exercise and it becomes so specific that we forget the whole of the child. So like everything else, with the goal of an IEP is to give that child the best education possible. It doesn't always work out like that. But who, who owns the IEP ultimately? Is it the oh, parent? Who owns it? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know who owns it. Yeah, I, I guess I ask you the question with a thought in my mind that I believe that the parents own it. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing to administer the plan, and it's yeah. one thing to teach to that level. But in in order for it to work, there has to be parental. Uh, there, the, exactly what you did. You sat yeah. uh, Nicholas down at the table. You worked with him. Yeah, but again, as the parent that is the one facilitating, really yeah. having the ownership of that, it's a battle. It's a battle with the child. It's a battle of balancing with the other children at home. And it's a battle with the teacher. It's a battle with the teacher. So it doesn't, it's just not this magic wand that, you know, you can wave and everything's great. That's right. And, and so again, it was, how do we balance? How do we keep our other children, you know, at a level that we all, that they also can succeed? Yes. Yes. And, and it takes time to deal with that IEP. Yeah. I mean, that it's like Nicholas learning his spelling. Can you devote that time? Do you have the time to devote to that, to make sure the child is able to do? It's a really tough one. It's really tough. Anyway. So, so Lois, was, was there a time that you could put your finger on as to when Nicholas began to come out of his isolation, to be able to come out of uh, his his uh, wanting to be alone, to start being with friends and do things, and maybe you saw things start to change a little bit? This is the driver of my story. And my husband's a professor. And in the second half of 1995, we left Australia and we went to England, to Oxford for six months because my husband had study leave. I decided to take Nicholas on. So we were away from the country and I asked Nicholas if he wanted to go to school there while we were in England. And this little boy's white face just went to the ghost. And so I thought, I'm not sending him to school. But I had a book, series of books to help me teach him to decode, success for all, of course it's going to work, words on a page, letters, sounds to make a word, hopeless. Nicholas had no memory for sounds, no memory for letters, no memory for nothing, couldn't do it. I was getting frustrated. And my mother-in-law was with me and she said, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. Now I've got nothing. 
I've got nothing. I've got no. I've only got a paper. I can't. You know, there's no. There's no internet at the time. What do I do? And I thought he can rhyme words and he can see patterns. That's what he can do. So with that, I just found. I found the rhyming words and I put them into a pattern. And so then I read it to him. That was transformative. I read the poem to him. We picked out the rhyming words. We said it and said it and said it, and we illustrated them. He relaxed. Let it go. Then eventually he could read them because one worked, then you do it again and again and again and again. That was transformative. And that was just, I mean, the little poems were the start, but then double O comes up, as in Cook, Look and Book. Hmm. And I wrote about Captain Cook, the last of the great explorers, taking a look without the help of any book, hoping to find a quiet little nook. <laughs> you know, and it was the pleading map of Australia. And because we're in England, there's we're visiting a museum and there's a map of the world from 1500 and I said, look, Nicholas, there's a gap in the map. There's no Australia. And Nicholas says, who came before Captain Cook? And I said, that's easy. That's Christopher Columbus. And he said, and who came before Columbus? And I go, I don't know. I've never thought of that. (laughs) Those questions told me my child did not have a low IQ. Mm -hmm. And I needed to see that. I needed to see his thinking. I needed to see what he was capable of. And because you're in Oxford, we actually, you found maps going through. Mapping became his love. We looked at maps everywhere and we went to the Bodleian Library which is the the second largest library in England and we go and ask well where would we find a Ptolemy map because what was funny about Christopher Columbus was Christopher Columbus's latest map was over a thousand years old and it was drawn by a guy called Ptolemy in 250 AD in Alexandria and we go to the Bodleian Library and say where would we find a Ptolemy map the lady turns around behind the counter picks up a book, plops it on the table and said, this is a book of Ptolemy maps recently printed. It'll be five pound. (laughs) (laughs) And so this little Nicholas, who anyone thinks can can tell you the history of world mapping. Wow. But but, but again, I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of the role that you played as a parent. Go with what flows, go with their strengths, go with what works and forget the rest because the rest will come along. But you also, you listen to your mother-in-law. Yes. You made it fun. You yes. had this plan, but you were willing to set it aside. Oh, I had to. You had to. And I think sometimes we get stuck and set in our ways that this is how it's going to be. No, we have to set those things aside. But then... The, the key thing that stuck out to me is that you were listening to him. Mm-hmm. You paid attention to all mm-hmm. these little cues. And I think often as parents, we aren't present when we're with our children. And so we miss the little things that they say that are really so vital and, and offering clues in who they are and who they can become with what they say if we're present. So you were there. 
there's two sides to the coin, isn't there? Because I was there for Nicholas because Nicholas was cooperative and he really tried really hard. My eldest son, who learns at the speed of light, drove me nuts. How I wish I'd had more patience and time with him and listened to him. He's wonderful. I didn't think he was wonderful when he was 9 and 10. <laughs> and thanks for being real with us. Yeah, yeah. Because we felt the same way. We felt the same way, and and I know that this is giving some parents hope that it's okay if some of our kids drive us crazy. If all of our kids drive us crazy, there will come a time that we understand. My advice would be now get some help because you can change things that will change the relationships. I wish well, I'd done that. I wish I would have had the help then too. Yes, yes. Would have made all the difference in the world. That's right. Only recently have I found these therapists that are family therapists. It's not the child's problem. It's a family issue. Get help. But think about it. You know, 10, 20 years ago, we didn't we didn't think that way. No. Uh, it, exactly. it was it, it was yeah, it was exactly. not a part of being vulnerable like we are right now. And I think that uh, a lot of people equated vulnerability to weakness. Yes. Something's wrong if you have to go talk to somebody. Yeah. We need to talk and we need to share those feelings and those thoughts and that confusion that we sometimes has have so that others who are now coming up and raising those children will recognize when they have those feelings, there's nothing wrong with me. This might be normal. We just need some tools to help us communicate. What I've learned recently is, you know, parenting isn't something you're taught, but because you were parented and you turned out okay, you think the way you were parented was okay. And maybe when you look at it, maybe it wasn't. Maybe we can do it better. So there's a lot of unpacking of what happened to you. What do you want to keep? Let's keep for the stuff that was good, but let's change the things that we can change. Lois, we have a course called From Broken to Beautiful. And uh, the, the idea behind From Broken to Beautiful is that we don't just typically throw the broken pieces away like maybe we were taught when we were growing up. You know, we, we live in, an, in a, uh, a demand society. And that demand society is, is if something breaks, you throw it away, you sweep it up, you throw it away, and you go buy a new one. And I, and I really believe that to a large degree, sometimes we, we look at life that way as well not realizing that uh, when we break, it's not an easy fix. We can't get the super glue out. And, uh, you know, I, I had a broken wrist this this uh, this winter, and and I, I wish that I could have just made it better. And and I couldn't, and, and it yeah. drove me up a wall. And it takes time. Yeah. It takes time to put the pieces back together, and that's the beauty it's that learning, it's that becoming, mm-hmm. it's what makes us stronger. And and I wrote down what you said about a lot of unpacking of what isn't good and change the things that we can. Yeah. Because there are things that we can change. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. And I want my, my children to be a better parent than it's I am. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. But you can only do that if you examine what's happened as opposed to accepting it. Exactly. So so Nicholas is 30 years old now. Yeah. Now, we, we, skipped, we skipped a lot of time there. <laughs> we uh, did. But Nicholas, tell, tell us about Nicholas today and tell us about his education 
after he left the first grade, just quickly? Uh, well, when we, that time in Oxford changed his life and it put him on a path of success. He was reading by the middle, of, he repeated second grade, he, he was reading by the middle of second grade and I was able to breathe a sigh of relief and say my son's doing really well. In 1999, our family moved from Brisbane, Australia to Lubbock, Texas. Nicholas is reading on the third grade level and he's going into the fifth grade and you, and we saw the principal at the school and she said, I think he should repeat and go into the fourth grade. And my husband said, well, won't he be old when he graduates? And she said, oh, yes, that's a problem. Oh, we've got this class in middle school where he can do grade seven, eight and nine in two years. So the whole of Nicholas's education has been a privilege. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. We went to Lubbock. Lubbock was fascinating because Nicholas went from the bottom to the top. And when he graduated high school, he graduated doing physics, chemistry, calculus, you name it, he did it and graduated in the top 20% of the school and won the Yes I Can Award for Exceptional Children for 2007. Wow. But it didn't end there. It didn't end there. We actually went back to Australia then and Nicholas did his undergraduate degree in the University of Tasmania and he started in engineering. And because it's a small school, you have to do the mathematics proportion in the mathematics department. And he just kept doing more and more mathematics. So after five and a half years of study, he completes two honours degrees, an honours degree in mathematics and an honours degree in engineering. <laughs> and then you think, oh, that's over. But it didn't end there. If it didn't end. <laughs> and then in January 2013, he's on a flight to London because he's got a scholarship to do a PhD in the Department of Flight Applied Mathematics at Oxford University. <laughs> and he graduated with his PhD in 2018. This this coming from the teacher who said that uh, he, he would never amount to anything. He wasn't smart. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, what what a story! Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I as as I as I hear that story, I it, it makes me realize that any child has a capacity. You know, they they might have different capacities in different areas. Maybe maybe I might like to write. Maybe Annette's good at mathematics, but we we acclimate to what we are good at and and to what we enjoy doing. But I do have a question. Uh, you reference in, in some of your writings about twice exceptional children. What does that mean? Children like Nicholas. Nicholas, when he was completing his undergraduate degree, we had him t- retested uh, because he wanted some support to do his writing of his honours thesis. We couldn't find anyone, but mm-hmm. we did the testing. Anything to do with phonemic awareness, structure of language, writing, um, and breaking up the language, Nicholas sits in the bottom 5% of the population. Nicholas's acceptable label is speech language impaired or developmental language delay. He has a significant language problem. On the other side of the coin, when you're dealing with mathematics and science and the science brain, everything was in the 80th and the 90th percentile with spatial awareness hitting on the 99th percentile, which is why he ended up doing applied mathematics. So you've got these extremes. And the struggle is when you struggle with reading, people think phonemic awareness, which is playing with sounds. Well, this kid could have played with sounds forever. 
and it's not going to get much better. So we've got to find a way around that so that we can build on his strengths. Exactly what we were saying is that you build on their strengths. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Now, now this this isn't a unique situation in your family with uh, with with your son. You you had you you had some things in your life that you had to overcome as well. Dyslexia. I'm still I still live with it. I haven't overcome it. I live with it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was asked to write a piece for a magazine and I was I was procrastinating and I'd write a little bit and I ended up thinking what is making this so hard for me to write and I wrote it I hate writing <laughs> that's why I'm having a struggle with it and people want it in writing and I can write I can give you my thoughts I have these wonderful thoughts to get it down everything I write has to be edited to make it better and polished and make it acceptable to someone else. Otherwise, it would be thrown out. So it's an ongoing struggle, dyslexia. It doesn't just finish. We can make it better by teaching children earlier. Okay. So how did you do that as a young girl with dyslexia? How did you even learn to read to compensate for that? I learned to read. I learned to read words. I was like your son. I couldn't comprehend. I, You know, I'm stoic. Nicholas is stoic. And you just keep going through it because you don't have much choice. It changed when I went into high school. High school is more content-driven and you have to do more thinking, and that helped me enormously. And I did enough to go to, to college and become a physical education teacher. And I had a scholarship to do it, which is why we did things in that time. And it helped enormously because otherwise I didn't have much choice. Yeah. I think it's that um, we had to figure out a way. Yeah. A way to succeed, a way mm -hmm. to do things. It's not, um, you know, with us, Mark loves, he is the writer. He loves to write. I would have to say I'm improving. And I get to edit a lot, just like you. And I'm really grateful for spell check and grammar check, grammar check, check yes, and yes. all these things. But this conversation really is making me feel a lot better about myself and the fact of there's a reason. There's a reason I struggle with it. And it goes back to when I was so young and I couldn't hear. It's not my fault. It's yeah. not that I'm dumb. It's not yeah. that. And so, again, you know, I am continue to learn. I have strengths in, in other areas. and But it's the persistence to continue to learn how to do things yeah. and to figure out, figure it out. That's, that's one of my strengths. I just, I'll see something. I'll think, well, I can go do that. And I'll figure out how to do it or how to make it. If I have to program the TV, I don't do it. I give it to Annette. That's, oh, that's we've given up programming the TV. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's always been, you know, I'm the, I, I do that stuff where he'll he'll take care of the writing, but but I'm actually enjoying. If I'm not stressed out and I'm not tired, I enjoy the writing more. Yes, I'm not what, so worried about the mistakes I'm making. What I find with writing is that I'm very slow at it because it takes time for me to put the ideas in a way that's easy and good for people to read. You know, it's not even getting the words on the paper, but how are you going to put them on the paper? 
Yeah, you can say it in this dull way. I mean, I've written a book. The book has three editors. Well, the first draft was so bad, you know, no one would have read that. So that doesn't count. But my first editor worked at the, the diamond mine. And she was really at the mine, and she helped me write it and get the words on paper in a way that it was a story. And when I went to publish the book, I had the publisher became my editor, and she published it, and she cut it. And she cut pieces, and we rearranged, and we made it really good. But then there was a third editor, and she polished it to Mm. make a diamond. And Mm. I needed all three to make the book what it is. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been good enough. Which is another example of trail angels yes each of them had had a job yeah to lead you and to help you along this journey in writing your book yeah so speaking of trail angels we've referred to you as a trail angel not just in nicholas's life but in so many others who follow you who have your books and listen to to your YouTube and your podcasts and things, and they find hope in you because you have been there before. Mm-hmm. So you're you're helping them to know that they're not alone and 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 just offering that hope. But in your own personal life, who has been a trail angel for you and and why? It would have to be my mother first because my mother was 70 when I'm teaching Nicholas when he was seven, and she said to me, Lois, I needed the help you were giving Nicholas when I was in school. It's the first time my mother would have recognised that she had a learning disability. Mm. We grew up on a dairy farm, and my first school was in a low socioeconomic area. When I was uh, 13 and in the ninth grade, my sister moved schools My sister had finished 10th grade and she did grade 11 at another school. And my sister said to my mother, Lois has got to come to this school now. My mother fought for me to move from my high school to go to the next school because girls girls only grow up to get married. Why are you educating your daughters? She was outcast in our society because she chose to go against the grain. Going to the next school for me changed my life. People were going everywhere. Everyone was going on to university. Everyone was studying. Learning was important. The school did school plays every year. I was part of them. We had a place in society. It was unbelievable what that school did for me, and it gave me a place to go to to college from. Otherwise, what do I have? What do you have when you're the daughter of farmers with no education? You continue on doing the same thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I can't imagine. And my mother was one of nine, five girls and four boys, and my mother was born in 1925. She's still alive. The boys were educated. The girls weren't. And as we get older, my mother says, the girls should have been educated. My sister was so smart. This one could do this. This one could do that. And so she was seeing the power of education. And so how my mother stood up to everyone and knew that her daughters had to be educated still amazes me. Your mother was a true trail angel. What a visionary. Yeah. 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 It was a visionary. It was. Mm -hmm. But your sister listened to the instinct within her 
Yes. That you needed to go now. Yes. Yes. Your mother right. trusted her. Yeah. And her instinct yeah. and her own instinct and fought yeah. for you. Yes. And yeah. that's what each of us need to do mm-hmm. is that we need to listen to that instinct within yeah. and and move forward. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what you have to do, I think. Just keep going with it because if you don't move out of that situation, life has changed so much, you know, not only from 1970 to 2000, but 2000 to 2020 and 21. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 2020 was so last year. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Lois, I, I have one last question I want to ask, and I and I, I do so because I know that there are a lot of people listening, a lot of parents listening that uh, want to be able to support their child the way that they're that you have supported Nicholas, the way that uh, your mother supported you. What advice? What admonition would you give to those parents that might be struggling in their in their parenting, in their in their desire to to help their child to achieve whatever it is that that child is capable of achieving? The first thing is really quite simple, and that is to believe in your child. I would never have thought Nicholas was capable of a PhD at Oxford. Never thought he was capable of a PhD, let alone at Oxford. So believe them. Believe that they can achieve anything and do what you can to support them. The second would be, I'd say, if you can, get some help for families because it's harder than we realise. Get support for you because you need it when the children are younger. And get support. And, you know, always reach out to your extended family and let them know how much they're appreciated and valued because my boys now at the ages they are said we I loved our childhood growing up because we were within 30 minutes of grandparents and we were down there regularly and they just had these memories of being with Nana and Grandad and Ma and Poppy and, and the love that they had from the extended family was phenomenal. Those connections are vital. And gratefully, we were able to live near family. And and our our children's cousins are their best friends. Yeah. And we just love that being together and that connection. Both of those points are so important. Believe in your child, but then also get the support. If, if you can, and, and if you aren't fortunate enough to live by family or you don't have that, that relationship with them, create a community that you can have that support. And the thing is, is that everyone needs a friend. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs family. And whether they are blood or not, you can have that support and those connections like a family with others if you put forth the effort. Find it. I have, I, our neighbor works with my husband and they have two little boys, they're Japanese, they're my grandsons, they're my adopted grandsons, and it's just gorgeous. And she's here alone. So that you do need support. 
You need to, and we need to be more open to going out and making sure we include people, I think, as older people now. And what a gift that you have these, these adopted <laughs> grandsons and, and an adopted daughter yeah. Who, yeah. who loves you, I am sure. Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I, although I've got work to do, she says, yes, you're busy. But I say, if I don't have time for you, I don't have time for anyone. <laughs> You are now part of the uh, Karen the Load Trail Angels family. Congratulations. And that is so right when it talk when she talks about community is that whether it's family or whether it's those around you, learning to trust those and, and, and learning to realize that you can't do it by yourself is so critical. So we appreciate you being here with us today. Uh, we we would send our listeners to LoisLetchford.com. We will put those things as a link in the show notes so that they can just click right on it and and have an easier access to you and also to your book. Yes. And read my book. Leave a review, please. Because <laughs> it helps. Uh, yeah, it was a labor of love, but it's. In, I thought it was important to get the story out because I want people to know when children fail in first grade, it's not a life sentence. It doesn't have to be a life sentence. That's what I want to know. And anything's well, possible. Anything is possible. Anything. Mm. Well, thank so. you for joining us today. We, we hope that you've enjoyed our conversation with Lois Letchford. Lois, it's been a delight uh, having you with us as we've discussed. And, you know, there, there were so many different different uh, titles we could have given this particular episode here. But we're going to have to rethink that now because, because this has been more about love uh, than it's been about learning and learning disabilities. And, and we appreciate you as we have discussed the importance of trail angels. Each of us have a story to share. Author Brene Brown reminds us that owning our story is the bravest thing that we'll ever do. The stories and experiences that our guests share inspire us, as well as to help us to grow and connect with others. We invite you to become a part of Karen the Lowe community through social media, as well as to share the site with those you know. We are stronger together. Keep Karen.